Open your Bibles, if you will, to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Tonight we will study verses 1 to 7. Second Chronicles 34, verses 1 to 7. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and as far as Naphtali and their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father, we thank you for the joy and the privilege of our lengthy studies in Second Chronicles and how we rejoice to be introduced or reintroduced to your wonderful servant, Josiah. Father, let us imbibe of his faith, a faith that looked to the Savior you would send and you have sent. And give us, Lord, a zeal for true worship like he had. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Josiah, king of Judah, was arguably the best ruler in the history of Judah after King David. The challengers to that accolade are actually very few. In the record of Second Chronicles, only seven kings are said to have done right in the eyes of the Lord, and only Hezekiah, along with Josiah, is said to have walked in the ways of David himself. Now, Josiah's godliness is especially impressive since he followed the over 50 years of abject evil in the reigns of his grandfather and father, 50 years of Manasseh and two years of Ammon. He's remarkable in that he spent his reign attacking idol worship, both in its root and in its branch. In fact, the courage he showed for taking on all the false worship that he found is absolutely staggering. Whenever the worship of God's people has been corrupted by the world, it is necessary that reformation be brought to the church. I think of John Calvin in his great book, uh, Why the the Necessity of the Reformation, Why the Reformation Was Necessary. It's very enlightening that his first argument and his primary argument was that the worship was corrupt, but the worship needed to be restored. And someone might say to him, wasn't justification, that was the second chapter, wasn't justification through faith more important? Calvin said no. Justification through faith is a means. The worship of God is the ends. And Josiah imbibed of that same spirit, and yet to reform the worship of God's people is unpopular and it's exhausting And yet we never read any indication that Josiah faltered or he wavered. If his reputation 
is rivaled by his great-grandfather Hezekiah, well, then that comparison is to Josiah's credit. Well, he was further remarkable in that he came to the throne of Judah after the covenant nation's doom was already assured. And for generations, and we've been following this in our studies of, uh, of, uh, of Second Chronicles, the question was hanging in the air. Have they, have they finally done it? Has the situation come to the point where God must uh, condemn and judge old covenant Judah? Was the covenant actually broken? And that answer had been, that question had been answered, and with it, Judah's doom secured during the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh's sins were worse, we are told, than even those of the Canaanites whom God had destroyed when he brought Israel into the promised land. He sacrificed, especially, he sacrificed children in the valley outside Jerusalem. And so the Lord said, because Manasseh, this is 2 Kings 22, 11 to 13, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Again, 2 Kings 22, 11 to 13. And so as a result, even Josiah's courageous reforms could do nothing to stem the tide of God's judgment. Now, we may presume that even at an early age, Josiah was aware of this. We will find out that before too long, he is told that explicitly by the Lord. There is a rapidly approaching doom. During his reign, it is prophesied very clearly, as we have seen, by the preaching of the prophet Jeremiah. And yet, even knowing that God's condemnation was soon to descend upon the nation, regardless of the godly reforms he accomplished, nonetheless, Josiah pursued the Lord and purged the high places with all his strength. How remarkable he is. And Dale Ralph Davis, I think, very admirably compares Josiah to Mary of Bethany. You remember Mary of Bethany. She wasted an expensive jar of alabaster to anoint the feet of Jesus. And she was challenged why she had made so profligate a gesture. And Jesus defended her. He said, she has done what she could. We will say the same thing about godly King Josiah. He brought a fervent desire to cleanse the high places, to restore true worship to Israel simply because he could. He did what he could. In Josiah's eyes, worshiping God in a way that glorifies his sovereign holiness is an end in itself. Although the purifying of Judah's worship would not stem the tide of judgment, it was worth doing because it was for the Lord. Well, when his father Ammon died suddenly in 640 BC, Josiah came to the throne at a young age. Look at verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. That is 640 BC to 609 BC. Well, coming to to, to faith at an early age, he exhibited one of the great lives, and one of the great lives of faith in the Old Testament. And he earned that accolade, I've already mentioned, so rarely given to one of Judah's kings. He did what was right, verse 2, in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. Now, what a relief it must have been to the godly people of Jerusalem, particularly the leaders, when they observed the piety of their youthful monarch. 
In fact, throughout Christian history, whenever a young king has exhibited strong faith and zeal for the Lord, his grateful people have tended to compare him to Josiah. Probably the most famous example is England's King Edward VI. He succeeded his colorful father, Henry VIII. And he not only, like Josiah, came to the throne at a young age, but under the tutelage of his godly and devoted stepmother, Catherine Parr, he became a devoted disciple of Christ and a student of God's word. uh, King Edward VI loved the Lord. And like Josiah before him, his premature death was lamented by the people. It signaled trouble that was to come, and they referred to Edward as the young Josiah. Well, the original King Josiah was likewise noted for his fidelity to God's word. Verse 2 says he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, that expression refers to his obedience to the law of the Lord. Now, in the early days of his reign, Josiah must have been guided by a regent that's more than insinuated here. But around his 16th year, the approach of his soul reign seems to have prompted him with an earnest desire for spiritual growth. Look at verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Now that need not be speaking about his conversion as we would put it today. But what it certainly is, is a firm resolve that he would know the Lord, he would grow in the knowledge of the Lord, and he would live according to his word. And if you've been following our studies in Second Chronicles, you know that this idea, seeking the Lord, is the chief theme that the chronicler wants his own readers, his own generation to imbibe. It's those he's shown who study God's word, who worship him sincerely and with a prayerful heart, who seek to glorify God by doing his will. Those are the ones who receive God's richest blessing and help. We're reminded by Josiah of the words spoken by Hanani the seer to his ancestor, King Asa. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Second Chronicles 16.9. Well, Josiah understood he needed the Lord's help. And so he earnestly set himself to seek the Lord. Now, I think we'd be interested to know who was the influence on young Josiah that prompted him to such godly piety. And I think one surprising option would be none other than his grandfather, King Manasseh. You know that for 50 years, Manasseh reigned as the single most wicked of all Judah's kings until his radical conversion to saving faith very late in his life. And we remember that in his last years, Manasseh removed the idols and the pagan altars from the temple and from Mount Zion. He commanded the people to worship the Lord only, 2 Chronicles 33, 15-16. Well, since Josiah takes up that very same endeavor, it makes sense that he was emulating his late repenting grandfather. Now, for Manasseh's part, it would make sense to focus his spiritual influence On his young grandson, his own son Ammon, Josiah's father, was already deeply advanced in the ways of evil. It would make sense, at least, that Manasseh would seek to influence Josiah. I think we can imagine long walks during which the aged king, once so wicked, now filled with the Spirit of God, he would have urged his little grandson, Josiah was six when he died, but he would have urged him, oh, seek the Lord, little boy. Walk in his way. Now, I admit that's speculative. 
but I think it's also uh, almost expected that this would have happened. Now, the opportunities for that kind of mentoring between Manasseh and Josiah would not have been long, but a new regime of believing officials came into power along with Manasseh's new faith, and they would have been on hand to exert their influence on young Josiah, extending Manasseh's influence into later years. Now, again, those thoughts about Manasseh's mentorship of Josiah are necessarily speculative, but they do remind us that few investments will yield greater dividends than the time and interest we show to young believers. The the neglect of royal fathers, starting with David's negligence to his own sons. Uh, The dreadful words are written, the epitaph on his fathershood is found in 1 Kings verse 6. At no time did David ever displease any of his sons, and they were a brood of vipers. Amnon, uh, Absalom, Adonijah, And they began what would be the ruin of Judah. Well, whatever was the actual influence that encouraged Josiah to seek the Lord and to walk in his ways, well, the benefit to the nation, indeed to God's redemptive history, was immense. We should follow their example, whoever they were. Now, from Josiah's own perspective, determining to seek the Lord provided the best possible preparation for a blessed and useful life. At an age when many young people, he was 16, we're told, when this resolution took place, I think especially of young people with wealth and privilege, so many of them at that age began devoting themselves to frivolities, and even worse, often in the teenage years, they begin cultivating the habits of sin, and little do they know the trouble it will give and the ruin it will provide and the waste of their years. Josiah, instead, he focused his attention on his personal piety and his godly character. What an example for the young boys and girls, the teenagers of this church. He'd come to know the truth that the Lord is God. I I suppose virtually all of our teenagers will, and what a blessing it is, they'll recite the confession. They know it's true. But do we seek the Lord? Josiah did. He committed himself to a lifelong pilgrimage of growing in faith. He did so at a young age. Matthew Henry joins the chronicler in urging young people today to follow his example. He says, it is the duty and the interest of young people as soon as they come to years of understanding to begin to seek the Lord for those that seek him early shall find him. Andrew Stewart envisions young Josiah in the terms by which John Bunyan described his pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. He said he saw a man with a book in his hand and a burden on his back. I looked and I saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. Well, given Josiah's later discovery of the lost book of God's covenant and the tender heart he showed in repentance, verse 27 of our chapter, Bunyan's description of young Josiah is to the point. You know, Christians, I suppose, tend to glamorize a dramatic conversion experience later in life, like Manassas, and it's awfully exciting. It's so encouraging. It gives joy to our heart when an evil person who's lived and wasted his life and worked great ruin at the end of his life, or maybe somewhere along the way, turns to faith in Jesus and is saved. It is a wonderful testimony to the grace of God, but Josiah reminds us it is better to grow up in the cradle of covenant nurture, never remembering a day when we vowed our knee to any God but the Lord. Andrew Stewart writes, God wants us to seek him as soon as we possibly can, 
God would rather have a whole life devoted to him from childhood than half a life devoted to him after a dramatic adult conversion. Well, do you, young Christian, realize the impact it will have on your entire life and on so many other people if you now will resolve to seek the Lord? Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1 says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of evil come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What a blessing it is to a boy or a girl to turn decisively to God to commit his or her life to serving Jesus. Many woes are thus avoided. And lost years that will never be regained are sanctified instead in the most formative years of life. Likewise, Christian parents are reminded of the importance of establishing high spiritual expectations for our children, not by legalism, but by grace. Because it should be our ideal and we convey that ideal. How vital it is that every Christian parent, in fact, all the church together, personally disciple the young people that they, like Josiah, would seek the Lord. Well, when Josiah turned 20 years old, he took up the reins of active kingship, the 12th year of his reign. And he devoted himself immediately to carrying on the work of Manasseh that he had begun at the end of his reign to cleanse Judah from its idols. Look at verse 3. And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. Now, not only would the recent history of Judah have suggested the urgency of removing these idols and every instigation to idol worship, it had utterly destroyed the nation and soon would put it to an end. But Josiah's growing faith seems to have grasped that that Christians have a duty not only to profess the Lord, but to obey the Lord. He put the commands of God into practice as soon, it seems, as he had the power to do so. Now, the high places were local sites traditionally used for worship. And many of the people who went to these nearby hills by their village or their town, they would have gone there and they would have worshipped the Lord. But the problem was that after Solomon built the temple, the Lord commanded that sacrifices be only offered at the temple on Mount Zion. And and therefore, these high places became instigations to false worship. We often think of the problem uh, prescribed by the first commandment, which forbids the worship of false gods. But we often forget the second commandment. Oh, our generation greatly forgets the second commandment, which equally forbids the false worship of the true God. First commandment says we may not worship false gods, but the second says we must not falsely worship the true God. Now, at their, at their best, these high places continued as a means of violating the second commandment, and they also led to the viol- often led to the violation of the first commandment. Well, many earlier and very godly kings had tried to suppress this local worship but failed. Josiah tried and succeeded. He showed early in his reign the resolve that would make him a great king. Now, perhaps because he was so aware of the dire judgment that idol worship was going to bring upon his people, he pursued the destruction of idols and pagan altars with a rare zeal in addition to purging the asherim verse 3 the asherim were festive poles dedicated to the chief goddess of the canaanite pantheon she was the wife of baal Uh, josiah's servants tore them down and he together with the other carved images and metal images 
Then they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. There's the chief god of the Canaanite religion. So this is the the religion surrounding them. Instead of syncretism, instead of looking outward and borrowing their ideas, he rejected them. He destroyed them. He cut down the incense altars that stood above them. Verse 4. It was the most thorough worship reformation in Israel's entire history, if ultimately too late to save the nation. Now, the parallel passage in 2 Kings chapter 23 shows that Josiah began his iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is the destruction of religious images. He began this at the temple. Now, Manasseh had started that. Manasseh, after he was converted, he threw out the idols. He threw them over the walls. But his son Ammon had undoubtedly brought them back in. So Josiah went back to the temple. He cast the idols out. He not only cast them out, he burned them and he ground them to bits those that were the offending images, 2 Kings 23, 6. And then he moved outward from Jerusalem into the Judean countryside. Verse 4, and he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved images uh, and the metal images, and he made dust of them, and he scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Now, I think it's, it's likely that Josiah perceived that this was a fleeting opportunity that his reign presented. And so he was seeking not just a temporary, but a permanent solution. In football terms, he was not trying for a field goal. He was going for the worship reformation touchdown. He wanted a permanent solution to this problem. And so he not only tore down the idols and the altars, but he ground them into bits. He did that. But then he desecrated the shrines. He was doing everything he could so that people would never come to those shrines and worship idols there again. H.L. Ellison notes that the mere destruction of the cultic objects would not invalidate a place of idol worship. It needed more drastic action to make the spot profane. Well, Dale Ralph Davis illustrates the idea of defiling a shrine or an image through a story told by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago. There was a Christian family during one of Stalin's purges who'd been uh, arrested and put into prison because they would not renounce their faith in Jesus. And they had a 10-year-old daughter named Zola. And they consigned her for an orphanage that housed mentally disturbed little children. Not the nicest place to be sent, no doubt. It was a mockery of her refusal to embrace communism. But once there, little Zola, through kindness and godliness, she won over the admiration of the other children. And they began joining her as she fought back against communist propaganda. Now, in the courtyard of that orphanage, there stood a statue of Stalin himself. And soon it began to be desecrated by mocking graffiti. Well, the authorities would see the graffiti and they would repaint the statue. Then they would punish the children. And then they'd come back, and there's more graffiti on it. They would repaint it again. They began seeking to guard it. But these young people in a place like that are are amazingly inventive, and they always found a way to get around it. The graffiti always came back. Finally, one morning they came out, and the statue stood, but its head had been lopped off. We're reminded of of the statue of Dagon in the the, uh, temple of Ashdod, for you readers of 1 Samuel. Well, the authorities renewed their threats to the determined children, but they did not replace the statue. Presumably, the mental image of the defiling graffiti could not be erased from their minds. Well, this is the kind of thing Josiah was doing. Now, his main tactic, we read in verse 5, was to exhume the bodies, the bones of pagan priests who were buried at these shrines, 
Although 2 Kings 23 shows that sometimes he slew the living priests there and used their bones. And then he would burn them on the altars, verse 5. The chronicler writes that by this means, Josiah cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And he zealously pursued this program throughout the line. Land, he was seeking to undo centuries of idolatry by which the people had betrayed the Lord and incurred his wrath. Uh, let's go back to 2 Kings 23 and get a sense of his energetic labors. This is verses 13 to 14. The king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars. He cut down the Asherim. He filled their places with the bones of men. Now the fuller treatment to the details of this purge of idolatry and abominations in Judah that's shown in uh, 2 Kings 23 uh, shows that he further extended this cleansing to the moral pollution that always accompanies idolatry. 2 Kings 23, 7, and he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. There was male prostitution in the temple courtyard where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And then he turned his attention to the practitioners of the occult. He put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, 2 Kings 23, verse 24. Now here's the question. Why such zeal? Why such determined effort, greater than shown by any previous king, to purge the land of spiritual and moral defilement? Well, one answer is that he was painfully aware that it was these things that had brought God's judgment upon the nation. He thought there was a he saw a desperate need to rid Judah of them all. Another way to say this is that Josiah was Judah's king. And the purging of idols was the duty of the king. So here's a believer who sought the Lord as a youth. And then as an adult, he sought to do the duty that was assigned to him in his calling. He knew the Lord deserved to be worshipped faithfully by a holy people. He was Judah's king. And so he purged the land of idolatry. Now, not many of us will have the application, well, you're also a king over a kingdom and you need to purge your land. No, we, we live on much smaller scales than a man like Josiah did, but perhaps we are parents. And so the question should be asked as to what idols need to be cleansed from our homes and from the lifestyle of our families. Are there inroads, inroads of sin loitering on our shelves and rooted in our schedules? We might ask the question, if we are to seek the Lord with all our heart, if we are resolved to walk in his ways, not turning to the left or to the right, what has to go? What are the changes that would involve? If that's the question, why would we not do them? Now today, the answers are probably going to be found, for instance, in our entertainment choices. The media to which we expose our minds and our hearts, for many people, the abomination of pornography will need to be rooted out by the grace of God, by the power of God, with determined effort and probably some help. For others, there will be shrines of greed or pride or worldly glory that have to be assailed. Now, this is not to say that Christians' family should have no exposure to secular sources of information or of recreation. 
But if, for instance, we are engaging in lewd entertainment or speech that is unbecoming of Christ's people, think of what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 3 to 4, these things should not even be named among you. Or even priorities that stand in the way of a commitment to regular worship of God in the services of the church. Well, the example of Josiah urges us to purge these things from our lives. Undoubtedly, the most universal application of Josiah's idol-purging example was given by the Apostle Paul with respect to the sinful desires and and habits that have taken residence in our hearts. He says this in Colossians 3, 5 to 6, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and then he says, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We are to take the zeal of Josiah to the idols and the abominations and the impurities within ourselves. And every one of us bears responsibility for the sanctity of our hearts. Every one of us should ask what ungodly attitudes or thoughts or habits have accumulated within us like the high places of Judah, the shrines and the idols that littered the landscape around Jerusalem. Well, so militant was Josiah's resolve against the idols and the pagan shrines that he actually extended his cleansing efforts beyond the borders of his, of his reign. It turns out that in God's providence, right around the year he became king in 640 uh, BC, the, the local superpower, the Assyrian Empire, had gone through some great troubles. And at that time, they were exerting very little influence in the Middle East. And that uh, dramatic downturn of that influence gave Josiah the, the freedom to spread out. And he took his reforms into the former lands of the northern kingdom of Israel. We read this in verses 6 to 7. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the idols' images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, it was in this way that Josiah fulfilled a specific prophecy regarding him by name was fulfilled centuries after it was given. First Kings chapter 13 tells us of this enigmatic figure, the man of God from Judah, who in the time of Jeroboam, now you remember Jeroboam was the first of the northern kingdom's kings. He was the one who broke away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And the first thing he did when he broke away from the house of David, even though God had promised him blessing if he would walk in God's ways, first thing he did was erect idols all through his lands, especially at Bethel. That was his chief shrine. By the way, he was motivated politically. He didn't want them to go worship at the temple because then they would be thinking about the king of Judah and the house of David for, oh, how many politicians do this? For the sake of political ambitions, he corrupted the doctrine and worship of the church. That's what he did. And there he was at Bethel with the golden calf. And this unnamed figure, the man of God from Judah, he shows up there. And he boldly approaches Jeroboam at that shrine and he, he cries these words. This is 1 Kings 13 2. O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, 
And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now that prophecy was given roughly around 900 uh, B.C. We're now in the 16, 620, let's say uh, 626 or something like that. All these years the prophecy was dormant, but it was a God's word and it must come true. And the very Josiah that prophecy foretold appeared appeared in his zeal for God's glory. The writer of Kings tells us the conclusion that happened when Josiah cleansed that shrine. 2 Kings 23, 15-16. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin, that altar which the high place with the high place he pulled down and burned, reduced it, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs. And he burned them on the altar and he defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God from Judah proclaimed who had predicted these things. Second Kings twenty three fifteen to 16. Well, Josiah then spied a monument near the grounds of the idol shrine, and he asked about its identity, and we're told in verse 17 of 2 Kings 23 that the men of the city said, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And that grave alone was unmolested. Well, the chronicler or the writer of Kings tells us that he then continued his purging of shrines and high places throughout the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the lords to anger. Now, now here's the question. What's he doing? He's king of Judah. He's outside Judah. This is, they, these are the, the lands of, of the northern kingdom, but that's been destroyed. It's now this land belonging to Assyria that's more or less unoccupied. You see, but to Josiah, this was Israel. This is where the name of the Lord had been bound up with his promises. This was the land of promise, and the Lord's glory was invested in that land. It was for the Lord's sake that he purged the lands outside of his own royal domain. Why? It was all part of the legacy once entrusted to his father, King David. He was a true son of the royal house, given to Israel by God in covenant faithfulness. And he would fulfill the duties of his office and of his family so that the Lord alone would receive the praise he is due in the lands he had given by his grace. Now it was to this same promised land that the original readers of Chronicles were returning. Let's always keep in mind the original context of Chronicles written to that generation of Jews who were returning from the Babylonian captivity and they were coming back to this land. The message of them was crystal clear. They were not to follow the the example of their syncretistic forefathers who had engaged in religious pluralism and had mingled together uh, false worship with true and they brought God's wrath upon them. No, they should become later day servants of Judah's last great king by worshiping the Lord alone and to do so in wholehearted fidelity. Isn't that the message he's giving his readers? And that way they would be paving the way for God's ultimate fulfillment in the new age when Jesus returns, where there will be a temple in Revelation 21, 27, says of that temple in the age of glory, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. 
Well, as a prophesied son of the house of David who would descend suddenly to bring God's judgment on the worshipers of idols, Josiah was a type and a true forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it noteworthy that when Jesus came to Jerusalem, we read it this morning, our scripture reading was the triumphal entry. What was the first thing he did was he cleansed the temple. He went to the temple, the place where God was to be present and was to be worshiped. He drove out all that was impure. My house shall be called a house of prayer, Jesus said. Revelation 19 reveals to us that in the future, yet future to us, Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he does, he will wield the sword once brandished by his servant Josiah. And he will purge the earth of all who bore the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Revelation 19.20 In that day to come, every false image, every idol-worshiping heart will be cleansed from the earth and the great prophetic vision will finally be achieved. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, the record of Josiah's long and faithful reign will provide the last great narrative of our study of 2 Chronicles before the fall of Jerusalem. And his stirring life is yet to be fully told. We're just beginning. And yet already every Christian can find in him an example to be imitated. From his youth, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And as a man, he zealously pursued the true and sincere worship of the Lord. Josiah was not the savior. Indeed, his courageous reformation couldn't even save the kingdom then under his care. They were doomed despite what he did. And yet all the evidence shows that he knew, he, he knew that his labors would not forestall the judgment that would occur as soon as his life ended. But what he could do, he did. He served the Lord with all his heart. Listen to the epitaph of S.G. de Graff. He writes, Josiah knew that the judgment of Judah was sure to come. But he wanted to press forward with the reformation of Judah anyway. He wanted to go ahead with the reformation solely for the sake of the honor and righteousness of the Lord. The Lord has a right to be served, even if our service does not bring the salvation we desire. Worshiping the Lord in sincerity and truth will not make your problems or our problems all go away simply because we worship according to God's word. But my friends, the Lord still deserves it. And trusting in God's word, every true and sincere worshiper of the Lord will bear witness that when the heir of Josiah's legacy returns from heaven and Jesus comes and he establishes the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, that which we are practicing now, we should be practicing now, zealously with all our hearts, will become our fulfilled reality then. I wonder if it was in anticipation of that eternal worship that Josiah cleansed the idols from Judah and Israel. Well, it should be for us. Since as we worship the Lord today, we are preparing for that worship that will never end. In that eternal temple will nothing will be accursed. Revelation 22 says, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever.
Father, we thank you for the chronicler's record of young Josiah. Oh, it's just a few verses, Lord, but it deeply challenges us. Father, how many of us are no longer used, and yet we do not seek you with all our hearts. We turn regularly to the right and to the left from your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would awaken us to the significance of our lives, yes, to the significance of today. And, Lord, we certainly would pray for those in our room and in my hearing, Lord, who are roughly the age Josiah was when he determined that he would seek you. May they determine to seek you. Yes, Lord, we pray for the generation to come that they would exceed us in zeal and godliness and in spiritual grace. And Father, let us realize that the greatest calling of our lives is doxology, that we exist for the praise of the glories of your name. Father, may we take it up, worshiping in spirit and in truth, May we zealously, and yes, Lord, joyfully, worship you now according to your word, casting out every idol, because this is our eternal destiny and calling. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask this in his name. Amen.